We've gotten up to Acts 26, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and it is our desire to conform our lives to it. We pray that you would bless and anoint uh, this aspect of our worship as we respond to that which you have given to us. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. When I uh, title this sermon, Religion is Not Enough, I don't in any way want to disparage the idea of true religion. There are some people who are so frustrated with religiosity that they have uh, contrasted the word religion and uh, Jesus, and they say they're, they're, they're poles apart. And I understand what they're saying there, but James does talk about pure and undefiled religion, which is driven and transformed by the life of God uh, from within uh, those people. Uh, so, uh, uh, the Bible is not against the religion of Christianity, uh, true religion, uh, but it is against empty religion, and that's what we're going to be uh, talking about today. James talks about people who had religion but did not have God. In fact, they had the Christian religion and they did not have God. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, he talks about having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Now, one of the dangers of using a passage like this to try to teach this is people think, oh, you know, Agrippa and uh, the Pharisees and pre-conversion Paul, they're from a totally different religion. And I think we're going to miss out if we think that way because at this point, Judaism had not yet completely kicked the church uh, out, of its, uh, out of its roles. Uh, most of the church considered itself still part of Israel. And uh, they worshipped in the synagogues. It's true, a lot of Paul's uh, churches were kicked out of the synagogues, but not all of them were. And there was enough similarities between Phariseeism and true Christianity that they had to have two Jerusalem councils to try to fix the problem. And Paul says it's not everything that the Pharisees said that was wrong in previous chapters and in this chapter itself. He's going to be saying, I am standing because I'm accused of something the Pharisees believe in. He's defending 
of Pharisaic doctrine, but he says the doctrine is not enough. And so there was a great deal about the religion of Agrippa and the Pharisees and the pre-conversion Paul that was right, but it was devoid of God's power. And I think it's very easy to slip into a comfortable religion and to totally miss out on the supernatural. And I want you guys to have the supernatural. In fact, here's the two things that I'm hoping will happen uh, this morning. Uh, these are my purposes in bringing this sermon. First of all, I hope this scripture will stir up within you a desire to have more of God. And then secondly, I hope that it's going to give you some great ideas on how to really reach out to people who have religion, but they don't show any evidence of the working of God within their hearts. And maybe it'll give you some encouragement in talking with them. Now, my first point is that we need to realize that the religious are often ready and sometimes they're even longing to hear about a supernatural Christianity. It may not seem like it because they're arguing with you and they're upset with you and it seems like they're hostile to that. But even in their arguing, many times they sense an emptiness within them and that's the thing that we can capitalize upon as we're, as we're uh, sharing with them what God has done uh, in our lives. In chapter 25 and verse 22, we saw uh, last time that Agrippa had expressed a real fascination with Paul. Uh, he asked his superior Festus if he could hear Paul preach. And uh, his superior said, sure, that's fine. And uh, in this chapter, he's going to hear it. In verse 1, he gives the invitation, you're permitted to speak for yourself. He wants to hear Paul. And I wondered, what made Agrippa so curious about Paul? Uh, it may be that he saw something different about the Christians that were in his jurisdiction. He recognized they were still Jews, but there was something different about them and himself. They had something that he did not have. And let me give a little bit of a, uh, of a background here. Agrippa practiced Judaism. You may not have realized it because he was under Rome's jurisdiction as a, as a king. He may not have been the most consistent in his personal uh, life, especially uh, you know, in his relationship with uh, Bernice, but the Herodian family had converted to Judaism uh, many generations earlier. He was an Idumean. He was a descendant of Esau. But in religion, he was a Jew. He practiced uh, uh, the religion of uh, the Old Testament. Now, Paul was not kidding in verse 3 when he says, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. He was a convert to Judaism. He practiced it. He understood it all. Okay, he was uh, somebody who went to synagogue regularly. Uh, he was generous with the mandatory three ties. He was um, somebody who understood doctrine, who read the scriptures, who conformed in many ways uh, with uh, Judaism. Now, his incestuous relationship with his sister Bernice uh, was a scandal, but aren't there lots of scandals in the church today? I think there are. You know, I think there's a lot of similarities here, and I think that Herod Agrippa fully expected that he was going to be going to heaven. He was a fairly decent religionist. But here's the point. His religion did not transform his life. It did not change him. He was able to rationalize his temper, his relationship with his sister Bernice and other personal sins, and all the time he's going through the motions of his religion. And I think there's a lot of similarities to modern Christians. Even though he had everything... From a worldly perspective, he was missing something. And if you have religion without God, your life is empty. And if you have Christianity without God, your life is empty. 
And Agrippa is simply the first of three specimens in this chapter uh, where uh, we have empty religion. What Paul basically is doing, he's addressing dead people who are trying to live. That's what he's trying to address. Jack Higgins, the successful author of 60 novels, was once asked, what would you have liked to have known when you were a boy? And this is what he said, that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. What a depressing way to end your life. I think that's exactly where Herod was at. In a few years, he was to die. He survived the war against Jerusalem. He retired in Rome, but he died there, a dejected and a very lonely man. And yet here, something made him want to talk to Paul. I don't think he got converted. That's not our job anyway. That's God's job to convert people's hearts. It's our job to reach out to them. Uh, But one of the things we can bank on is that religionists like Agrippa and the Pharisees and the pre-conversion Paul will have the same kind of emptiness. There's a hunger there that nothing but God can satisfy. Tommy Tenney gave this as his testimony. He said, A hunger had been birthed in my heart that just wouldn't go away. The gnawing vacuum of emptiness in the midst of my accomplishments just got worse. And you probably know people exactly like that. And so the question I want to ask is, how do we reach people like that? I want our church to be able to reach out to people like that and bring them into life and bring them into the joy of the Lord, which is their uh, strength. Now, the first thing I would say is to be polite. That's point number one. Be polite. There is a place for giving a scathing attack for enemies of Christ. Jesus did that on occasion. Um, So I'm not saying you can't debate with people and I'm not saying that you can't on occasion ignore religionists. But uh, when the Pharisee Simon came and invited Jesus to his house for dinner, Jesus treated Simon differently. What he did is he appealed to the emptiness that was in Simon's life by pointing to the joy and the life and the power and the transformation that he could see in that harlot. Now he was critical of the harlot. And what Christ was trying to do is to take his eyes off of some of the the, the past that he saw and help him to focus on the life that was in that harlot that he did not have. He did not have that. When the Pharisee Nicodemus came to Jesus, what does Jesus do? He shows him life, a life that Nicodemus was devoid of. And that is what Paul did with Agrippa. He's not judgmental. He doesn't look down his nose at him. He's polite. It says here in verse 1, So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. How many times do we lose the privilege of testifying because we've been rude or judgmental or we're looking down our nose at people? Of course they're wrong. We're not denying that they're wrong in that, but a stare does not uh, not help. Many times it will completely close down investigation of a seeker. And in this case, it looks like Agrippa is a seeker. Rudeness rarely wins people. Now, if there are enemies who have no interest in dialoguing, their only goal is to destroy uh, Christians, sure, it's okay to be rude. Jesus was rude on occasion with people. You can see that in, in various passages in the, in, in the Gospels. And so I don't have a problem with that. But most religionists, I don't think, are sinning against knowledge. This is the only life they know. All they know is going through the ritual and yet feeling empty at the end of the day. And so politeness can win an audience. Next, he's very enthusiastic about sharing. He says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa. Paul loved sharing about how he had been rescued from a dead and empty religion into a relationship with God that had power and joy and meaning and life. 
He loved to share. Enthusiasm is a hint to other people. We possess something that's worth being enthusiastic about, right? Now, if we're trying to share the gospel, and we think this is a wonderful gospel, but we lack joy, we lack enthusiasm, uh, we don't have peace and, and the, the kinds of things that you see in pe- God's people there, they're not going to take our testimony very credibly. But if you have something that is, uh, uh, is wonderful, you're going to want to share it with other people. You're going to be enthusiastic, especially if they're willing. And here, Agrippa is definitely willing to listen. Uh, during this past week, um, I'm part of an email group blog or whatever you call it, and uh, one of the people that we were uh, talking with said in response to our talking about uh, raising our children in the fear and nurture of the Lord, he, he said something to the effect that he didn't want to impose Christianity on his children. They're just going to have to figure these things out on their own. And somebody responded, wow, you must not think too much of your Christianity uh, to have an attitude like that. In fact, you must think a whole lot more about your views of Iraq than you do about Christianity because you sure impose your views about Iraq on everybody in this blog. And he says, if you were transformed by, Christ, uh, by the Christian faith, why would you not want to share it with your kids and raise them in the fear and nurture of the Lord? And see, I think that's the problem. He was a religionist. He had religion, but he did not have Christ. What's to get excited about religion? Third, he was willing to answer objections. It says here, I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews. Anybody who is a thinker is going to have some objections to your Christianity and to your testimony. It's just human nature. They're going to have a lot of questions. And if you show a willingness to answer objections and you have a confidence that all objections can be answered, it's going to be taken a whole lot more credibly than if you're just writing them off and not discussing and and looking down on them and being judgmental of the questions that they have. Here, Paul is willing to fully answer the objections that people bring. And then fourth, Paul respected what Agrippa did have right. He didn't just focus on the negative. Now, there was plenty he could have criticized Agrippa about. Plenty he could have done. But look at verse 3. Especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Okay, he's basically saying, you know the faith, and I respect that. Uh, He acknowledges areas that Agrippa had right. Now, later, Paul is going to be telling Agrippa some things that are going to turn his, have the potential of turning his world upside down anyway. But this politeness makes Agrippa willing to keep listening. And I think we too need to show respect to people if we want them to respect the message of the cross that we're bringing uh, into this world. And it could be done in many different ways. It could be as simple as uh, commenting if you really do appreciate the, the care that they've taken for uh, a flower garden as you're walking up to their door. Or it could be much more in-depth discussing and asking their views on current events that are troubling America. Uh, But I think Paul is a wonderful model how to approach religionists, how to interact with them, and not just say there's so big a a gulf between the two of us, there's no point in even talking. Now, of course, we do need to confront the sin and the emptiness at some point, but we can soften the blow. This is uh, Roman numeral three. We can soften the blow if we have the humility of Paul to admit we've experienced emptiness. We've had legalism in our own lives on occasion. And uh, we ourselves uh, are, are troubled by some of the things that, 
that they have been troubled with. Uh, what he's doing here is he said he too was once a religionist. Look at verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. Now, I admit it was a whole lot easier for Paul to admit that he was a persecutor of the Jews. Everybody already knew it. He was a public figure. Everybody knew uh, he was one of the, the ringleaders on that. And I admit it's harder for people who aren't in the public eye to expose their lives. But let me tell you something. Transparency breaks down barriers. A lot of times religionists have a big shell up around them. They don't want to expose their lives. The whole point of their, their shell is to pretend that everything's hunky-dory. They're scared to expose what's going on inside. So when you're transparent, it gives a window of hope that maybe will help them to open up as well. In verse 5, he's going to admit that he was the worst. He was far more religious than the religionists who were accusing him. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I had lived a Pharisee. Paul knew what he was talking about. He wasn't just a Pharisee. He was the strictest sect of the Pharisees. And uh, he did have a lot of right doctrines, but his doctrines uh, were not enough. He did not experience the reality of that. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys know Jack Miller. He was an OPC pastor in Philadelphia. He's dead now, but uh, he's written a number of really neat books. One of the things that he would say when he was confronting Phariseeism within his congregation is that he was a recovering Pharisee, right? And uh, that's what Paul is doing here. Paul's identifying with Agrippa and with the Pharisees in a way that's going to make it much harder for them to say, hey, you're judgmental when you point out my sin. You'd have a hard time saying that. So when you're helping or trying to help people out of a dry stage in their Christianity, admit to dryness yourself. Admit you've gone through times of legalism. Admit uh, that uh, you have sometimes felt very, very distant from God. What Paul is going to do in verses 12 through 18, which we won't have time to get into, he's going to give an incredibly awesome testimony of the supernatural power of God, God's grace within his life. But what he's doing in these verses is saying, hey, I didn't always appreciate that. I didn't always appreciate that. Fourth step, admit to how easy it is for any of us to lose a life-giving relationship. Israel once had a powerful relationship with God. They did incredible things. Hebrews 11 talks about that. They glorified God. They were once in covenant with God. In fact, Paul identifies with Israel. He speaks here of our fathers and our 12 tribes. You don't say that if there's utterly no connection between the church and Israel, okay? The Israel of the past. But Israel, like pre-conversion Paul, had lost a whole host of things. And the first thing that they had lost was hope. Verse 6, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. He was being judged by the Jews for holding to a hope that the Jews have always held to. This is just an odd, odd thing. Uh, this means that the Jews had lost their hope. Logically, it means they'd lost their hope. Well, this is the way it always is. If God is not in religion you're not going to have the fruit of the Spirit. And hope is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Now, you can talk about a theology of hope, but you're, you're, if you're not walking close to God, you're going to feel that sense of hopelessness, which can lead to despair. It can lead to um, uh, discouragement and bitterness and anger and frustration. And all of this to, is to say religion is not enough. We need a God-given hope. 
They had also lost faith in God's ability to do what He had promised. Uh, their faith had not worked out so frequently uh, that they had become cynical. And verse 6 speaks of the hope of the promises made by God to our fathers. What had happened in Christ's ministry is that the Pharisees were denying that these promises could or had been accomplished uh, uh, in Christ's life. They didn't have faith to see that the Scriptures, uh, what the Scriptures were clear on. And Christian religionists today, I think many times, have a hard time believing that God can actually do healings, miracles, that He can guide us. Oh yeah, He can guide Pastor Kaiser. But can he really guide me? And I think we need to be careful when we're, uh, when we're criticizing or standing distant from some of the excesses in the charismatic movement that we're not pointing the finger judgmentally and doing it because we just don't have or we're insecure about God's presence and activity in our own lives. Thirdly, they had lost zeal and enthusiasm in thir- serving God. Verse 7 says, To this promise are twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day. Hope to attain. Now to do anything night and day uh, means it's all-consuming. And it was pretty all-consuming for the heroes of the faith that Hebrews 11 talks about in the the Old Testament. They had a zeal and enthusiasm that came from God and led them to God. And Israel seems to have lost this. And I think we too can lose that zeal and that enthusiasm very easily, even as Christians. And um, uh, I, uh, I think we need to examine our hearts. If we have grown dull and if we have grown uh, without, uh, we've lost the heart that we once had. We've lost the joy of the Lord and we've lost our first love. We need to examine our lives and ask God, Lord, is there something that's missing? Am I not walking close to you. Now, the word God in verse 7 shows that they had lost their focus on God. See, religion tends to have a horizontal focus. It tends to focus on meetings, busyness, programs that are out there, doctrine. It's mostly horizontal, whereas real Christianity is focused upon God 24-7. For example, when we're studying doctrine, we're always asking ourselves, Lord, what do you want me to do? How is this doctrine to shape my life? Uh, When we're disciplining our kids, we're asking God for wisdom. When we're at work, we're asking God for strength. Uh, Throughout the day, whether we're engaging in evangelism or whatever we're doing, we're God-focused. That's where we're supposed to be. Whereas when we're falling into religion rather than true Christianity, the scripture that says God was in none of their thoughts can be true of us. We go through an entire day and think, wow, I didn't think about God once this day. That means we're slipping into religion rather than into the kind of Christianity God wants us to have. Now, ironically, these Jews were missing the very thing that they were hoping for. Okay? They're not only missing it, but they're opposed to Paul who has this hope. This is the irony. It says, For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. There's the irony. The hope that was a part of their doctrinal standard is now being opposed in practice, which means their lives are not lining up with their central doctrinal themes. And I want to ask us, how do we line up on these points? We need to realize that religionism does not happen overnight. It's a downward spiral that gradually happens in our own lives 
It may be subtle little compromises that make us more and more distant and our love to grow cold to the Lord. And because there's not the fire of Christianity within us, what happens in our children in the second generation? They begin to be content with a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. They may be believers. And in the third generation, it's a generation that does not know God. They know their religion, but they don't know God. Now, the only way that we can stop that downward spiral into religionism is if we teach our kids constantly to press beyond religion. It's not like religion is bad, but that's not enough. We need to get them on a daily basis to know the God who made this universe, in whom we live and breathe and have our being, having a constant awareness of His presence and power, learning how to have intimacy uh, with Him. Let me explain what I mean by point number five. Point five says, challenge people to think through why they oppose the supernatural. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were very skeptical about the miracles that Jesus did. Uh, they were utterly skeptical a resurrection had happened, uh, utterly skeptical that people needed anything other than following the law. In fact, they're skeptical when Jesus cast out demons. They didn't even believe that this was happening or some, some of them attributed it to, 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 to Satan. When Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing, it just didn't seem too believable because their whole lives, they've been getting along quite well following their religion. They just didn't realize the degree to which they had uh, their religion was empty. And what Paul is saying here is that their unbelief in the supernatural was not because the Bible did not promise supernatural. It did. It talked about this hope that all of them were looking forward to of the resurrection of Christ and of the messianic a kingdom that he would usher in. So why do people not believe in the supernatural today? I think a lot of times it's because their lack of experience is driving their, their exegesis. The Pharisees were out of accord with the Bible. They're out of accord with the historical position of the church. He insists in verse 7, to this promise our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. Okay, uh, this was the historic faith. Let me just make a, a, a little rabbit trail here because I have run across this so many times in the Midwest. There are a group of people out there called uh, the Identity Movement and there's another group called British Israel uh, Movement who deny that Jews are really Jews. I consider it uh, a racist organization. Here's what they believe. They believe that in 722 B.C. that... Um, the northern tribes, and this is true, the northern tribes were cast into exile uh, under Assyria. But they say that those are now the, that those were, became the ten lost tribes of Israel. They never came back to Israel, according to them. And so they figured out where those ten lost tribes went. And it happens to be the British and the Western Europeans. So you say, well, what about the people who call themselves Jews? And they say, well... There was a Jewish rabbi who converted Khazars, and uh, those people are no more Jewish than a Swede would be. And there's absolutely no basis for this. Um, I've done a, quite a bit of research uh, recently on this, and let me just give you one example. Uh, genetic studies of the Y chromosome have demonstrated that Jews from all over uh, the world uh, show a common ancestry, and actually they're closer to Arabs genetically, because Arabs descend from Abraham too, right? They're closer to Arabs than they are to Europeans. 
But that's just science. The Bible itself clearly says that the Jews came back to Israel several times in Ezra and several times in the book of Nehemiah. And there's verses in the New Testament that says all 12 tribes existed at the time of Jesus. And so it's a theory that just does not hold true. Now, that, the reason I give you that rabbit trail is because it's so strong in the Midwest. I want you to... This is one verse. Here he says, you know, the 12 tribes presently exist. And... Uh, I, 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 uh, it, it, we need to have scriptures on hand to be able to counteract that. But back to Agrippa's problem with what Paul was saying. He knew he couldn't argue with Paul. His incredulity wasn't because Paul's doctrine was irrational. Okay? Um, he had other problems. Perhaps Agrippa had a facial expression that showed his doubt. Uh, we're not sure why, but there was something that prompted Paul to say in verse 8, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Agrippa hasn't said anything. So why does Paul make this outburst? Uh, people assume that maybe he had some kind of um, a facial expression that makes him think, this sounds crazy, uh, Paul. But a supernatural Christianity cannot be intellectually discarded. It is only prejudice that discards the supernatural from science. I've got some um, professing Christians who are evolutionists, and they just do not want the Bible brought into science. In fact, they say it's by definition excluded. You can't bring the Bible in. Science only deals with the material world, and you've got to have a materialistic uh, evolutionary explanation, which is just bizarre in the highest to me, because what they are doing is this is, uh, from my perspective, an anti-intellectual prejudice against non-material evidences. It's an anti-intellectual prejudice. Who's to say? That's very arbitrary to say that you can only have what's material in science. Everybody has presuppositions, and actually you can demonstrate that every pagan has non-material assumptions about how science should work. But um, anyway, I think there's a much deeper reason why Agrippa is showing some, some um, doubt about this, and I think point D explains what that is. Ultimately, people are afraid that God might do to them what he did to Paul in verses 12 through 19. In other words, God might ask them to do something they don't want to do, something that might make them very uncomfortable. Uh, you can feel in control when you've got religion. Sometimes you don't feel totally in control when you've got real uh, Christianity. In this passage, the risen Savior, actually it's in verses 12 through 18, the risen Savior tells Paul, stops him in his tracks and tells him, drop what you are doing and tells him now what he needs to be doing instead. He demands unconditional surrender from Paul. By the way, salvation is about unconditional uh, surrender uh, to the Lord Jesus uh, Christ. But uh, there are two armies. The only hope of survival that one army has is if it lays down its arms, waves a white flag and says, okay, Lord, unconditional surrender. And the rest of our lives needs to be that. But what Christians want to do is they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to have their feet in both kingdoms. And in this question here, they want to have a Christianity, yes, but they want God in a box so he doesn't tell them to do stuff that's going to be uncomfortable for them to do. See, the moment you bring the supernatural into the equation, God might be unpredictable. 
He gives dreams, you know, and visions and guidance through Scripture. He intervenes in a way that could be scary. I mean, what if God tells me I have to give up what I cherish? I just don't want to give this up. Well, it's an idol. It's almost guaranteed God's going to tell you to give that up if you're not willing to do it because it's become an idol and God's in the idol destruction business, right? What if God calls me to be a missionary? I I just couldn't do something like that. And we become nervous when there's a real Christianity and God is showing up in our lives. I prefer a God that I can control to a God who might push me out of my nest. But you see, real Christianity is one that gives unconditional surrender to God and says, God, I want to do whatever you want me to do. And it trusts God to be good in all that he has us do. Uh, We speak of this as consecration. Let me tell you a story that illustrates consecration. Ruth Mitchell was the sister of the the, uh, famous general in World War II, uh, General Bobby, or Billy Mitchell. Uh, She was the first foreign woman to ever join the death-defying Kamataji of the Belground Underground. Now, these guys uh, really did do some, over a hundred period of a hundred years, some pretty amazing things. But they were set aside during World War II to harass the, uh, Hitler's forces as they came uh, over the Yugoslav uh, frontier. And she wanted to do something that would make her life to count. And so she signed up for, to, to be part of the Kamataji. Um, <laughs> and here's uh, what she described as went on. After the initiation... Pekanek, the leader of the group, crossed her name off the list of those who had applied for membership. And she's wondering, how come he's crossing my name off this list? And he explained his reason in these words. We just cross your name off, my girl, because we consider you dead when you become one of us. We value our lives as nothing. Wow. That's consecration. And I think that is exactly what Jesus Christ calls us to when we become Christians. In Luke 14, verse 27, Jesus said, Whoever does not bear his cross, cross is an instrument of death, right? Does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Here's how Ellie Maxwell explains this. Christian consecration means I have been crossed out, killed off at the cross, that I count not my life dear unto myself. Then I am prepared to join the old Methodists in their covenant of consecration. Then he gives the Methodist pledge. This is what all Methodists had to pledge when they came into the church. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. Can you say that? See, if we are utterly consecrated to God, we're in a much better position to call our kids to consecration. And if we are utterly consecrated to God, our lives are going to show something that's either going to attract people to Christ because they want what we have or is going to make them upset with us. But either way, it doesn't matter. At least they can't ignore our Christianity. It is a real Christianity that they are seeing. And so consecration is saying to the Lord, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. Now, let me give you a caution here, because as soon as we start talking about consecration, legalism can enter in. 
It's always a danger if you seek consecration apart from grace to simply have a more dedicated religion. Okay? You're more dedicated to your religion. That's what Paul was trying to do. He was answering his emptiness by saying, I've got to try harder. I've got to be more dedicated, more sacrificial. And I want you to take a look at verses 9 through 11 where he redoubles his efforts trying to do the right thing before God knocks him off his horse and converts him. Verses 9 through 11. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now, Agrippa already knows all about this. He knows about how the Sadducees and the the Pharisees had been persecuting the, uh, the Christians. His own dad had killed James. So this is not something he's not familiar with. But what is fascinating to Agrippa is that this leader, this well-known leader of the persecution of Christians, a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, has been turned upside down, is completely different after he is met, and he goes on in this testimony here, after he meets the living uh, Jesus in in that vision. Now we're going to look at that, Lord willing, next time. But what Paul is doing in these verses is he's trying to make it clear no one should confuse zeal with real Christianity. Now, real Christianity is zealous. But don't confuse the two. Don't confuse enthusiasm or defending the cause or sacrifice or even fanaticism with real Christianity. Those can be counterfeits that insulate us and make us think we've got the real thing when we really don't. For example, all Pharisees were required to be evangelistic and to try to win converts to Judaism out of paganism. All of them were engaged in this. not as if he wasn't trying to serve Christ, I mean God, and yet Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. You mean evangelizing and praying and serving in the church and doing all of these things does not save us? Absolutely no, it does not. And even after you were a Christian, it does not guarantee that it's going to make your walk closer to the Lord. So much of our ministry is self-righteousness. So much of hyperactivity is dry and it's empty of God. And no doubt some of us have thought that Christianity is busyness and ministry, but you can be as busy as Paul was in serving the synagogue and still be empty of Christ. You can be as zealous as Paul was in defending a cause. You can be as enthusiastic about your faith as Paul was and still not have God's presence in your life. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13 says, you can be so zealous you're willing to lay down your life and have your body burned and still be without divine love. Okay, There are Christian fanatics who may not know Christ. And so when you ask these religionists what their hope of salvation rests in, you're going to get very similar answers. They'll say they attend church and teach a Bible study and extend hospitality and evangelize and pray. And what is common to all of those answers is self-righteousness. They are restless because they have not found their rest in Jesus. I've had times in my own ministry where I have done ministry from my fleshly strength. It's Phariseeism. Okay? Even though I'm saved, I'm reverting to religion, not Jesus. And, Je- and Paul said he wanted everything in his life to flow from union with the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? There is no substitute for the sovereign grace of verses 12 through 18. 
As I said, we're going to look at that next week, Lord willing. But let me read you a short piece from a blog that shows how covering up our mess by faking it will let us down. Transparency, humility, casting our sins at the cross of Christ, receiving His forgiveness, receiving His strength, His power, His mercy, His grace. Those are the things we need to be doing. But listen to this. Blog says, Barb's life is a mess. Her drinking problem is out of control and her husband Ken refuses to cover for her anymore. Everyone around her sees Barb's problem, but they all pretend like everything's just fine. A classic case of denial. Every Sunday, Barb and her family dress in their Sunday best and go to church as the perfect family. Everyone at church looks at Barb and her family as the model family. They look so perfect. Sitting in the row behind Barb at church each Sunday morning is Joe. Everyone likes Joe, especially all the guys, because he's a man's man. Joe played football in college for a Pac-10 school, and he's filled with stories of athletic conquest. But when Joe's all alone, his heart is filled with emptiness because of his inability to sustain long-term relationships. His marriage only lasted six months, and over the years he's driven away everyone close to him with his short fuse. But that Sunday, when a friend asks Joe how things are going, he quickly says, Great, never been better. Joe and Barb have both learned that church is a place for plastic people, a place for perfect people. So Barb's become Barbie, complete with her husband Ken and her perfect plastic children, and Joe's become G.I. Joe, a plastic action hero everyone admires but no one really knows. But inside, Barb and Joe are dying because they're not made of plastic. Churches throughout our culture today are filled with Barbies and Joes. We've learned that image is everything, that what counts is how you look, the impression you make. So we in the Christian community have perfected the fine art of faking it. Wow. Does that describe your family? See, some of us are content to be evangelical Pharisees who fake it. We don't have the joy of the Lord, but we wouldn't dare to admit to others that we don't have the joy of the Lord because they might judge us. They might think poorly of us when admitting it and opening up might be the beginning of the Lord's working in our hearts. Paul faked it for many years as an ultra-strict legalistic Pharisee who was trying to be perfect in everything. And the Pharisees, I mean the Sadducees, faked it by reducing God's command. They threw out most of the Old Testament. They just followed the Pentateuch. But they were straight-laced in their worship. Man, if you didn't measure up on worship in the temple, uh, you just didn't have it made. And Agrippa faked it with his generosity and with his adherence to a modified code and his faithfulness in the synagogue. And there's lots of fakers that are out there that our church needs to reach out, but we're never going to reach them until we stop faking it ourselves. And we have a transparency and an openness in saying, Lord, whatever it takes... I want to follow you. I want to receive your life within my, uh, within my life. Now, we're going to look at the solution to all of this next time, Lord willing, but I want you to turn over to verse 18. And this is part of Paul's call that he recounts that Jesus gave to him. And I think this verse describes the heart of Christianity. This is a crystallization of what Christianity is all about. His commission is to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now that's 
real Christianity. And you cannot have that apart from the presence and the power of God's grace within your life. And we should not be satisfied with anything less than this description of Christianity. Let me break that verse down very quickly. First, Christianity is about opening blind eyes, which is talking about conversion. We've not had very many miracles of grace very many conversions in this congregation. And in part, it may be because we've been satisfied with one expression of God's supernatural in our lives where He resurrected us to life, but we're not continuing with that. What did David do? Every day of his life he was crying out, Open thou mine eyes, that I might behold wonderful things out of your law. He recognized even as believers, we need His sovereign grace opening our eyes so that we can see, so that we can read the Scriptures in a way where it's feeding our soul and it's setting our hearts on fire. We need God's grace within us. Second, He turns us away from darkness to life. We are not saved to stay in darkness. We're not saved to stay in dark. God's purpose is to usher us into more and more and more light. And if you're struggling on a daily basis with the darkness of depression and oppression, don't just stolidly endure it. Okay, Learn how to resist, resist the prince of darkness who is afflicting you. Now, it may be likely you're going to have to renounce legal ground that you've given to Satan where he can look at God and say, God, I don't have to get out of his life, do I? Because he's given me legal ground. He's never renounced his sins. You may have to repent of sin, renounce it, put it under the blood of Christ. You may have to resist Satan with the word of your testimony, which is taking Scripture as your affirmation of faith and with the blood of the Lamb. But once you resist the work of Satan in your life, it is, it's just remarkable how God's grace flows in you. You see, darkness does not leave on its own. You've got to resist it with light. We don't have light. God has light. And so the only answer to supernatural darkness is the supernatural light of God's kingdom. So I urge you, start thinking about the supernatural. He says we're not really wrestling with flesh and blood when you've got all kinds of problems and people persecuting you and troubling you. We're wrestling with principalities and powers. If you learn how to fight spiritually, you're going to make some success. Thirdly, Christianity is about rescuing us from the power of Satan to the power of God. And if you don't know daily the experience of breaking the power of Satan's life, uh, as Satan's work in your life, talk to me. I'd love to schedule a time where I could work you through the very simple steps that it takes of how to resist the power of Satan his temptations, his afflictions, his bondage. See, I get the feeling that some of you guys are struggling to do the right thing. You long to do the right thing. And, 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 and yet you lack joy and you lack peace and you lack hope and there's so many things that you lack in your life. In fact, this has been true in my ministry. My first, I think it was first two years, I'm not sure, somewhere between one and two years when I was pastor up at Trinity, I lived under a, a cloud of oppression that made it so difficult for me to pray, I had to sometimes read prayers. It was so, so difficult, and it was a miserable existence, and I accidentally stumbled upon this when I started reading some of Mark Bubeck's prayers that were spiritual warfare prayers, and I felt the oppression lift, and it began to dawn on me that I'm not entering into the joy of the Lord because I've got demonic power that I have to be rescued from. 
we've got to realize we do wrestle with... Uh, well, if you're not wrestling, you're just under his power, period. We've got to wrestle with uh, principalities and powers. In fact, uh, I, I still blow it sometimes. This past vacation, just two weeks ago, I was down in Atlanta and uh, met with Bill and Ann Hughes. Uh, what a wonderful couple. They've been such good friends. And I had no idea until uh, they helped to expose, and it was so obvious, it was a demon of unworthiness, and it was so obviously there, I was shocked that I was unaware of this demon that was robbing me of joy and making me feel unworthy, unworthy, unworthy all the time of any of the blessings that God might uh, bring uh, into my life. And it reminded me, real Christianity does not ignore the demonic. Okay, it knows religion is not enough. Fourth, Christianity is about receiving forgiveness. What a glorious thing it is to be cleansed of sin, cleansed of guilt, to have consciences that are not burdened and heavy. Okay, when we hide our sins, you can't get any forgiveness. And yet, what are so many Christians about? It's putting on a facade, it's hiding our sins you're not going to get forgiveness. If you redefine your sins the way Agrippa did, oh, that's not really a sin, that's not so bad, you're never going to get forgiveness. And at the heart of Christianity is forgiveness. Now, we're not here to judge one another. What we're here to do is to, to enable each other to flow with God's grace, to find the, 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 the freedom and the liberty and the encouragement that comes from His grace. And so if you've been hiding your sins in order to maintain your safety and security behind your religion, determine right now to crucify your pride and say, Lord, I'm not going to hide this anymore. I'm done with that. I want to embrace your forgiveness and I want a daily life of confession and forgiveness. I want to walk in your power. Fifth, Christianity is about fulfillment and giving you an inheritance. God wants you to be fulfilled. He wants you to have all of the inheritance that He's purchased for you. Look at verse 18. He says that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Notice the order. We don't find the fulfillment of an inheritance until we have forgiveness. Okay? Um, we have to cut off our sins that Satan uses as legal grounds against us. But once we've cut those off, we've put them under the blood of Christ, we've resisted the, 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 the demons with the, the word of our testimony, the blood of the Lamb, the inheritance automatically flows into our lives. And yet how many Christians rarely taste of the incredible treasures that God has reserved for us in Christ Jesus? <laughs> Learning how to walk by faith and to appropriate our inheritance is an essential part of Christianity. And I hope that this sermon is stirring your hearts up to despise the emptiness of religion and to long for more of God. I hope it's causing you to say, hey, I don't want my kids growing up satisfied with religion. I want them to be in touch with the God of this universe, the God who has promised to work in us. We cannot be satisfied with religion. Our flesh loves religion. It makes us feel good somehow. It's not too comfortable with real Christianity, but our spirits long for real Christianity. Okay, six, real Christianity is about sanctification by grace as promised in verse 18. And it's not sanctification by trying harder, okay? It speaks of those who are sanctified by faith in me. In other words, in Jesus. It's received sanctification. But that phrase means two things to me. 
First of all, it means that sanctification is not an option. We must be sanctified. If you've parked all of your life on justification because it is a wonderful doctrine, it gives us security, but you're never going on to sanctification, you're robbing yourselves of one of the glories of the Christian faith, which is growth in the Son. Okay, so first, it's not an option. Secondly, that, you know, trying to be sanctified, that brutal pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of Christianity is not in view here. It's sanctification by grace. It's a sanctification. Let me tell you something. It's a sanctification that enables you to still have hope and joy and peace and security in Jesus Christ even after you have sinned miserably. Why? You're secure in the Son. Real grace enables you to have that but it doesn't make you stay on the ground when you've fallen down. You know, when a little kid is learning how to walk, it's always falling and stumbling, but it doesn't stay on the ground when it stumbles. Why? Because it's got a passion to walk, and real Christianity has a passion for holiness. And so, yes, you'll fall on the ground at times, and you'll cry, but you don't sit there and stew for days and say, oh, woe is me, I'm a hopeless Christian, I can't get up. No, what you do is you get up and you try again, you hold on to Daddy's hand, and you're just rejoicing in the fact Daddy's not going to whip you because you're falling down, right? No, Daddy loves you. He's encouraged that you are wanting to get up and move on. The only time we have to get whippings is when we're rebelling against God. God delights... <coughs> In our sanctification, He delights in helping us step by step uh, to grow. And so, many Christians have opted for the dry, lifeless, depressing sanctification of religion. And they've not experienced regularly the thrill of real Christianity that, as Isaiah says, makes us walk and run and soar eventually on wings like eagles, not growing weary. Which kind of sanctification have you been experiencing? If it's the dry and dusty one that you're just grin and bear it, I've got to just get through this, if that's what you're experiencing, make this Sunday be a turnaround where you say, I'm no longer going to be following religion. I want to do everything that I can to connect with God and His grace and His kingdom, to be walking in the power of His Spirit. Sanctification of religion makes you weary but not the sanctification that comes from God. Seventh, real sanctification is about walking by faith rather than by sight. See, rarely does religion make a person get beyond his own abilities and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we must walk by faith to please Him. Religion's not enough. Faith is constantly looking beyond religion and it's connecting to God. It's saying, Lord, you've blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ and what I need right now, I believe you've purchased for me and by faith I receive it and I thank you for it. And then finally, real Christianity is about fellowship. The text says, in me. That's fellowship with Christ, in me. But it also says, among those who are sanctified. That's fellowship with the saints. And so, even though religion is, is satisfied with superficial relationships, real Christianity is not satisfied with anything less than deep relationships with God and with each other. Now, I don't know about you. I want more of verse 18 in my life. I've had enough of verses 1 through 11 in my life. I don't want religion. I want to connect with God powerfully. Now, unfortunately, real religion looks good to some people. You may have heard about the fate of Adele Gaburi in Worcester, uh, Massachusetts. 
She died in her home, was not discovered for four years. Uh, Scott told me about somebody that they had to deal with. I don't think it was four years for them. What a mess. Oh, it was awful. And people wondered, how in the world could this happen? Well, it happened because so many people covered for her. There was her elderly brother who was in a nursing home, and he thought that she had gone to a nursing home, so he didn't check up on it, and uh, he was kind of disabled and out of it. And then there was the, the neighbor, and uh, the neighbor's name was Eileen Dugan, and uh, she felt sorry for her neighbor, saw the grass was growing, and so she started paying her grandson $20 a month to mow the yard for four years, mowing this yard, making it look just uh, immaculate and beautiful. The mailman noticed that the mail was all stacking up, so he just started storing the mail at the, at the post office. All of these people are covering for her. They're not checking out the story. When the pipes froze and the water was coming out of the front door, the utility company just shut off the utility or shut off the water. They never, they never announced it. It took four years before the, before the uh, police ever ended up investigating and they found her body. And so all of this external respectability that was out there, why? Because people were covering for her. And I'll tell you something, I don't want to cover for religion anymore. It doesn't do the religionists any favors. I want every one of you to have real joy in, in real Christianity. I want you to help your children to get past verses 1 through 11, to experience the power and reality of verses 12 through 18. So don't cover for your children. I asked Mary Ann if she would mind my sharing with her, uh, with you guys, a, a dream that she told my wife uh, she had this past week. She was, in her dream, talking to two people who claimed to be Christians, but as she was talking with them, she discovered very quickly that they had what um, our pastor uh, Paul Walker uh, preached on last week, had a Christianity that did not minister to the heart. And she felt such a burden of the Lord upon her that it brought her to her knees and she said it was effortless. It was as if words and truth and tears and passion were flowing out of her to this, of these other people and trying to convince them and contend for the faith. And she said it didn't come so much from the mind as it did from the inner being. And, and, and it was just like rivers of living water that were flowing out of her. Now that dream was very encouraging to her. And the next day she was seeking to appropriate God's power. She was writing down something. I read it, and it did seem like it had the power of God's anointing upon it. But I thought, what a beautiful image. What a beautiful picture. This is what I want for every one of us, to, for us to drink so deeply of the rivers that come from Christ that out of our innermost being would flow rivers of, rivers of living water. I want it to be so that we're so connected with Christ we're excited. It's easy to share the gospel with other people. We say, just like Paul did, I am happy to do this. I'm happy to share with you the Lord Jesus. I love Jesus. I love being rescued from a dead religion into a life-giving religion that God has intended for all of His people. It should feel normal. And so if we have drunk of Jesus, we will overflow for others. God has given us the ability to have life and to have it more abundantly. Receive that life and share it with others. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank You for the life that we have in Christ Jesus. Please forgive us for the times where we have failed to appropriate the riches that You have given to us. Oh Lord, we want our lives to count for time and for eternity. 
we want to escape from the, the, the legalism and the and the the just the dryness and the emptiness that religion alone brings. And uh, we want to have both the form and the power thereof. And I pray that as uh, people uh, in this congregation uh, seek Your grace and seek to uh, find Christ living in me, that testimony of Paul to be true in their lives, that, uh, Father, You would bless, You would open up the windows of heaven in causing Your anointing and Your provision to flow in and through us. We thank You and we bless You. In Jesus' name, Amen.